Greetings, boils and ghouls, and welcome to episode 6. I'm Nathan Waters, and as usual, I'm joined with my co-host in the macabre, K.R. Brooks. Today, we're taking a look back at John Carpenter's seminal 1978 slasher film, Halloween, as well as bringing on a guest that we're very excited about. So grab your popcorn, grab your jack-o'-lantern, and grab your trick-or-treat candy, because tonight, we're going to Haddonfield. This is Those Who Remain. guest today is a longtime friend of Into the Void Films. He's worked in some capacity on most of our projects and is actually one of my longest friends in Chicago. I've known him since directing class at Columbia College Chicago. If you look up the words persistence and dedication in the dictionary, there's a picture of our guest. Together with his producing partner, Rachel Clare, he made the indie horror film The Visitors, as well as dozens of shorts, music videos, and corporate projects. He's a father of two and still finds time to do what he loves. I'm very proud to introduce the one and only Jeremy Hall. Yay, welcome. Wow. What Thank is you. up, dude? Wow. That was quite the intro, sir. Thank you so much. It's well I deserved. We pride, I think if we pride ourselves on anything so far with this podcast is, intro, is giving a, a, a very much uh, well-deserved uh, intro for our guests. Yeah, I mean, when in your life do you get that sort of an intro for yourself, right? Like when you walk into a room, someone's like, the fabulous, the wonderful, Jeremy. Oh. Well, I, I think after that intro, I'm going to have to hold like my, my daytime employer, I'm going to have to hold them to a higher standard. They're going to have to introduce me every day I walk through the door just uh, like yeah. that. I have, I have a new uh, writer in my contract, boss. Every day when I come in, I want a carpet rolled out. It's like a I'll let you know. Intro. I'll let you know when I'm unemployed again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's good to uh, hear from you, man. Um, I know life's crazy for everyone, and we're all busy. So I'm happy that we carved out some time on a on a Sunday night to you know talk John Carpenter and to just talk movies in general. Absolutely, absolutely. I've been looking forward to this all week. Me too, man. I just want to start with um, some of the basics of the movie and how it started. So uh, Halloween came out theatrically in 1978, uh, directed by John Carpenter, uh, written uh, by John Carpenter and uh, Deborah Hill, who produced the movie. Uh, The movie was shot in 20 days on a budget of just uh, $300,000, somewhere around there. Uh, I've seen a little less, a little more. Uh, until recently, which was actually the Blair Witch Project that we just, uh, which we actually just talked about, Halloween was considered the highest grossing independent film of all time. Let's see. So the the actual inception of the movie, uh, the one of the ex- uh, executive producers, his name's Erwin Yablons. He actually came up with the basic idea, but it wasn't originally called Halloween. It was called the Babysitter Murders. And, um, you know, the, the kernel of the story was still there where it was, you know, a, a masked killer picks off uh, victims on Halloween night. So basically they offered the movie to uh, John Carpenter and they were able to raise the money through the producer, uh, Mustafa Akkad. And uh, that whole story is interesting because uh, Mustafa Akkad was used to working on movies like that cost like $300,000 a day, like huge, like desert, like, you know, people riding on horses, like these epic movies. So when they came to him and pitched him Halloween, they're like the whole movie costs $300,000. 
and we're going to shoot the, like the whole thing in 20 days. And he was like, like sold. Yeah. Hell yeah. That's a no brainer. Um, so that, that's kind of the inception. And um, one of the things I always thought was awesome was that John Carpenter had the, the nerve to just straight out say, I'll only do the movie. If you guys give me complete creative control and let me put me, uh, put my name above the title, which I think like before this his only real, like huge, successful credit was assault on precinct 13 so he wasn't like john carpenter that we know and love he was just kind of coming out the gates so for him to make that demand kind of shows the confidence that he had as a director at that point so i i had read that um so you you mentioned how the they, they kind of gave him this idea or whatever and passed it along to him um i guess the original script took place over several nights um instead oh, okay. of just halloween night and the reason they did that was because of the budget because they didn't have, you know, they spent half of their camera budget on, you know, Panavision cameras or whatever. So, um, which, you know, kind of makes sense. I mean, I don't blame them. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the reason was they, they're like, oh, no, we can do it all on Halloween night. And then we don't have to do as many uh, wardrobe changes. Even though I guess the, the uh, like, Lord, like Jamie Lee Curtis and whatnot for her character, she went out and I guess bought her own clothes for the for the movie. Oh, yeah. But like that's just it's like so, you know, when you think about it, um, you know, it's like that's what indie filmmaking is. It's like, hey, you know, what's my wardrobe? Hey, what do you got? What do you have in your closet right now that we could use and that that can fit with this? Because, you know, you might not have a budget for, for clothes. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're saying well, like I, uh, a, a wardrobe and makeup and everything was all in like one little van. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And there's actually photos of um, Jamie Lee Curtis, like in between setups, like her helping move uh, camera gear in and out of different locations and, wow. and stuff like that. Yeah. That's so, I awesome. mean, it was, yeah, I've, I've watched a lot of documentaries on the making of the movie and, and read a ton of stuff on it. And it was very much a, like, let's scrape up what resources we have and just make a movie. And that's one of the things that I find so, you know, endearing about it and just uh, how much I love it. <laughs> and that's like so different from like a, a big budget Hollywood set. You would never see that. Like if you had someone from a, a different department or whatever, try and touch a camera or touch whatever, they'd be fired on the spot. So that's so oh, yeah. funny that like, you know, like Jamie Lee Curtis is lugging around, you know, some film canisters or whatever it may be. Like, that's awesome. Cause you know, mm -hmm. we all know we're all indie filmmakers and everyone does everything sometimes. And that's just the way it goes. Yeah, I never yeah. really liked that whole vibe. It's like if you, you know, grab a camera case or something and you're not in the camera department, you could lose your job. Right. Before we get like, like deep into Halloween, I want to I want to ask everybody, like, since the movie is going on 43 years old, you know, and we were all... Wow not even born when it came out <laughs> we weren't alive we were dead when it came out um <laughs> we're undead <laughs> we were we were undead what like how did you guys like first hear about halloween like how like what you know what it was your perception about it like when did you actually see it how old you were roughly if you know i'm just curious um for me halloween is my favorite like you know og you know horror film um and one of the reasons for that is when i was little my family would come over uh on halloween and we'd go trick-or-treating and we'd come back to the house and eat our candy and order pizza and just it would be 
like awesome. It, it was like my favorite time of the year. And I always knew when it was time to go to bed, because when I was like seven, eight years old or whatever, I would hear that iconic music come on for Halloween and the intro. And I would, I knew, I, they would let me sit through the intro because the intro is just like this is just slow zoom in on the, the jack-o'-lantern. And then mm-hmm. as, soon as, as soon as it started to end, they'd be like, go to bed. <laughs> so, and that happened year after year after year. So I knew about, I'm like, what is this film? I have to see it. So I don't know how old I was when I saw it. It was probably like, I don't know, 12 or something. And it, it just stuck with me as like, this is awesome. I'm finally getting to see this movie. So I don't know if like you guys had any like experiences similar to that or like, I'm, I'm really curious to hear your guys' um, stories on it. Absolutely. Um, so for me, um, the re- one of the reasons I love this movie so much was <laughs> growing up, I, I was terrified of, of horror movies, like so much so that um, we, we used to have like a little video store that was connected to the um, uh, grocery store. Uh, I lived in a really small town called called Eaton Rapids when I was a kid. And I, I was too afraid to even like go down like the horror section and like even <laughs> look at the look at the covers. Like I was terrified. Dude. I remember. Yeah. yeah I, I, mm-hmm. Same here. I was, I was terrified. The one that stands out to me, you guys are going to laugh so hard. I used to be so terrified just seeing the cover of um, Child's Play 2 with the, the head coming out of the, the uh, um, jack-in-the-box. Yeah. And he's like, you know, can use the scissors. Yeah. For, so that used to just terrify me. And so, like, I was too afraid to watch horror movies. And I didn't – I actually didn't watch, like, any horror movies until I was, like, middle school, junior high. And this one – other than seeing like like little scenes and clips and stuff from other horror movies and like not being able to place them, this was the first one that I saw in its entirety. And I can't make this up. This is where I fell in love with horror movies. I was over at a friend's house and it was around Halloween time. And so he had rented um, the first one and I think a couple of the sequels, maybe a couple of other movies. And so um, it was really late and we sat down, we watched it. And um, it like it didn't when it was all done it didn't really scare me the way i thought it would like i jumped in all the jump scares and like found certain things creepy but you know i had enough you know common sense to be like well it's just a movie and because i had seen so many movies up and up to that point and so it was done i was like well that was kind of cool that was a cool movie and i like i enjoyed it and then he's like okay well it's time for you to go home and it was like one one or two in the morning and his mom was supposed to give me a ride home. Well, she was asleep. So it's it was about a two and a half mile walk back to my house through um, this like suburban neighborhood. And I'm like, well, I'll walk back. And so it's, you know, middle of the night, it's pitch black. There's nobody around. And as I'm walking, I kept hearing like the breathing at the end of the movie in my head. <laughs> And I would and I would stop, and I turn. And I'd be like that thing where my my footsteps would stop, but I felt like I was hearing like two more behind me, and then they would stop. And I'd look over my shoulder, and no one's there. And so it reached a point where I was so creeped out that I ran like <laughs> the last half of it all the way home, like got into bed, curled up, and and tried to sleep. And 
you would think that that would, you know, put you off from wanting to see more horror movies. But for me, I couldn't get over the fact, like, something that I thought was just really cool when it was done, I couldn't believe how much it got under my skin and why. And so I went and rented it and rewatched it. And then I rented a bunch of other ones. And before I knew it, I was just hooked. And I just kept watching more and more horror movies. And I became fascinated by them. Hell yeah. I know I know. <laughs> I have uh, a lot of my friends growing up in the area. We, we were the same thing. Like they were a mile, two miles away, roughly or so. And I swear, like, and I'd always pass by my, my grade school when walking. And mm-hmm. I would sometimes cut through, there was this, there was like a shortcut in between the school and the church. And um, when you got to like the, the middle part, there was the en- their side entrance to the church and then the side entrance to the school building. And um, I always, when I walked down, I'd like glance over to my left towards the school and like, you just see straight down like the traditional, like, you know, school looking hallway. And you know, I'm just like, oh uh-huh. man, oh my God. Oh my god, what the fuck's gonna be there, dude? Every fucking time. <laughs> That's so funny. I think when I was in high school, I wrote a short story about um somebody walking home, you know, and uh like at late at night and just sort of like the the shit you imagine at night when you walk home. So I think that's super relatable, man. Everyone has that, you know, like I had a girlfriend in high school that lived right by a cemetery. So I'd be like leaving her house at like 1230 at night and had to walk by the cemetery all the time. And it's creepy, but actually like cemeteries are kind of peaceful. It kind of reminds me of, um, in the crow and, you know, like, uh, he tells a little girl to stay there and she's like, is this okay? And he's like, it's a cemetery. It's the safest place to be. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but for me with Halloween, I think, uh, everyone in my family was a huge horror movie fan and watched that stuff all the time, especially by the time I, could remember stuff halloween was playing on tv all the time so um the thing with my family is like i i remember watching horror movies probably about as early as like even eight or nine but like Mm -hmm. my parents contextualized it really well for me so they're like this is fake that's a director all those credits at the beginning those are people that's makeup and um they would still make me look away for like kills and stuff just because (laughs) you know they're like saying normal like people um but uh (laughs) I, I still knew who Michael Myers was. I knew who Jason was and stuff. And I actually, for a long time, I was telling Kev before we recorded, I had, I had like weird mixed memories of all the sequels because they were on TV so much. I had a hard time keeping them, keeping them straight. So it was, it was only as like a teenager when I watched them again, that I was like, Oh, that was actually part four and not part six. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like straightened it out for myself. Um, so I think that's why I always handled horror really well is because I had it explained to me really well, you know? And Jeremy, you know, you mentioned like, you know, the video stores, which don't really fucking exist anymore. But I, man, I would just go at once a week and peruse the horror section. And it was just like, 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 do you guys miss like fucking video stores and stuff? Like I do. Oh man. I really do. Like we're so like, I like streaming is great. Like it's cool. Like you have everything at your fingertips, but man, like, I don't know how many movies I've turned on and turned off in you know the first five minutes because I'm like, eh, I'll find something else. Like Halloween, you were like, I loved it, man. And I always knew, like you mentioned, Jeremy, you mentioned that you know, like the the covers would scare you. The one that always freaked me out was Dead Alive with her like opening. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. in the fucking yeah, oh man, awesome that cover. creeped me the fuck out, man. Evil Dead Two has a great one too with the with the skull. 
Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Exactly. The, either the dentist one or the dentist two, or it's the lady with the mouth with like the razor teeth is a good one. Yeah. I remember yeah, always the, the video store uh, in my hometown was called Video Villager and the horror section was right next to where the porn section was. So they, they, <laughs> there would always be people coming in and out of the adult section and you're just sitting there like, I'm just trying to look at Freddy Krueger, <laughs> you know, and that was always kind of awkward. But like, I remember the same thing as you guys have being like, you know, the video games was right across from there. So it was like in uh, in Step Brothers when he looks into the room with the drums and the music's like, oh, season it all. <laughs> right. Dude, yeah, I miss that, man. I Me really too. Do. I'm, having, I'm having flashbacks. I rented like all the Halloween movies there. I rented I like yep. all the Nightmare movies, all the Jason movies. I would get so mad when someone had like, I think it was like I was on four. It was like Halloween four. I had, I, I, you know, rented Halloween two, three, and then when I got to four, like someone had it rented already. I was like, I was you so motherfucker. disappointed. Like I have to yeah, wait another two wait. days or whatever it was <laughs> for this asshole to bring it back. What if he doesn't rewind it? Yeah, exactly. And I got to wait extra five minutes. Would they call you when it came in though? Like our place was that mom and pop that they would actually call you and be like, Halloween force here. Ours was a small place, but I mean, maybe they did that. We never, I'd never even thought to ask him that, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah. We, our place did that. I'm trying to remember what, I think the, the place in Eaton Rapids was, was movie market. But when we moved, when we moved away from Eaton Rapids to, to Holt, which it's like a half hour away like a half hour northeast um it was family video we, we were always at family video and family video had these deals where it was like for a dollar you could rent a movie for a week <laughs> oh damn that's awesome oh yeah so and and during the school year um if you brought in your um your report card it was for every a that you got you got a free rental and if you got uh, for every b that you got um then it was half off oh, okay so um yeah i used to leave there with stacks of movies <laughs> my favorite video store story um so i was still i was probably you know 12 or 13 and and again i would always go to that horror section and i was a huge fan of tales from the crypt so they had a whole you know every single tales from the crypt at least whatever had come out at that point on vhs so one one day I was with my dad and I think my mom was like going out with her sisters or something. And so he he's like, oh, we'll go to the, the you know, we'll order some pizza. We'll, we'll get some movies, whatever. So he's like, yeah, go pick, pick, pick out whatever you want. So I wander over to the horror section and I, and I don't remember. I, I, off the top of my head, off, off the top of my head, I don't remember which um, exact uh, tales from the crypt it was. But man, we got home. I popped it in the VHS player. And it's the the segment started off with like this hardcore sex scene, and I was like twelve or something. <laughs> My dad <laughs> let it play the entire through throughout the, that whole scene, which to me it felt like it was like twenty minutes long. It was probably only a couple like a minute <laughs> or two. And I'm just sitting there like, oh my God, what the fuck? I mean, like nudity, everything. Twelve years old sitting there like, oh, okay. And then he goes turn the shit off <laughs> that's i will never fucking forget that it was the funniest fucking turn that's the hilarious. shit off <laughs> not during or not right when it started no let me see let me watch the entire let me porno section of of the fucking movie and then nope turn it off 
It's and now so turn it cool. off. Oh, man. Classic uh, dad move. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, getting back to Halloween. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up, uh, I know The Shining was the first movie to do Steadicam, right? Like it was officially called Steadicam, but Halloween had like Techno Glide, right? Or like the it was like it was like basically the version before that. I hope I'm not saying it wrong, but if one of you guys knows the name of it, that'd be dope. But if, you, I, if I not, think that is right. I, I, Techno Glide or something like that. Techno Glide or Panaglide? Yeah, Panaglide. But yeah, Panaglide sounds right. Mm -hmm. But it's basically the precursor to the Steadicam, and they used it for Halloween for that amazing opening sequence that um, looks like one shot, but it's actually two or two shots, I think, three shots that that have like uh, cleverly uh, obscured edits in there. Like when he puts the mask on, there's an edit there. I forget where the other one is. Um, but that whole scene is a, is a pretty funny story that plays into what we were saying about, you know, this crew having to make the most out of having a low budget because they said that as they did the shot, like as they moved through the house, there'd be crew like moving lights around. And like when they went upstairs, there were people completely resetting things. So when they came down the, the opposite way, it was lit correctly. And that house mm-hmm. had to, had to be distressed to be, you know, the Myers house when it was destroyed as well as being like the Meyer, the Myers house for the, for the beginning. So they just really had to stretch that location and get the most out of it that they could while also kind of pioneering this technology, you know, that we kind of take for granted now, because you can get like a little steady cam oh. for, your, for your iPhone. Oh yeah. Yeah. And which I think it took them two days, two full days to shoot that, that one, one scene. Um, which is crazy, um, but it, I mean, it's super effective I, and awesome. Like I read that yeah. they, that it took them one full day, but like that's all they did all day. But I've like heard conflicting things. I I could totally believe it was two as well because yeah, that shit's crazy. Either way, I mean, yeah, to, it's, to, yeah that's impressive. To dedicate an entire day or two days, whatever it was, yeah, that's to, nuts. to that to that one. Oh. Actually, the funniest thing about that, and I, so I watched the movie again today, dude. So. You know, little Michael's walking around. He sees Judith, his sister, go upstairs with her boyfriend. Immediately, he's already coming down the stairs. I'm oh, like, yeah. that I was the, that the, the, the oh, yeah. fastest quickie <laughs> I've ever seen. And actually, I read today because I was like skimming through like, no, looking shit up. And it was, it's like exactly one minute they had to go upstairs, <laughs> have sex, and have him come back down. I'm like, damn, they're efficient, man. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, he's, look, I'll he's call you tomorrow. Yeah. That's really funny. I, I always laugh at that too, man. Whenever I watch the movie, I'm like, God damn. Although, although later in the film when it's Linda and Bob, yeah, dude, that lasts only like 20 seconds too. Like that's very short-lived yeah. as well. So, I mean, I guess they're well, look, all... You have time restraints when you're trying to make a movie, okay? Yeah, right. You, you can't go into these long drawn out... Well, Tales from the Crypt can, but but not Halloween. <laughs> It's a filler episode. You're right. <laughs> I think it's funny that like the the slasher genre always gets critiqued for that idea that like people that have sex get killed, and um, it's usually like with the final girl. It's like she's not having sex or she she doesn't have a boyfriend. And um, I, th- I read a lot of interesting things about this, but but go on. Yeah. Well, there's like just a lot of different theories on it, and it, I, it's I think it makes a little more sense with Jason because like the body counts way higher and like there's just a lot more people that are out there like smoking dope and having sex and whatnot but in halloween especially the first one maybe not so much the sequels but we won't really get into those here but uh with the original one it kind of seems like laurie just 
is paying attention because she's not doing those things but like those kids don't right. get, get killed because they're having sex that's just they're just distracted you yeah, know they're they're they're, yeah. they're they only they're you know they have tunnel vision they just yeah. want to bang <laughs> that's yeah. the only thing they want to fucking do and they don't realize that there's a serial killer yeah. on the loose but I, yeah I, I never really yeah. got so intellectual with it to be like well it's like I, the, there's this awesome documentary called halloween 25 years of terror that it just really goes into all this stuff but like there's this guy that's like well the knife is a clear phallic symbol uh and it's it represents male toxic masculinity which like i don't know like maybe there's some truth to that but with halloween it just seems really simple and kind of like unbridled by a lot of the those motivations it's yeah just, there's just a crazy guy that saw this girl when she dropped off the key and you know starts following her and her friends yeah and it's in that movie really has like a sense of like stripped stripped down elegance to it where it's 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 so simple in, in its plot and its functionality that it does things that were you know revolutionary at the time that we don't even really consider to be revolutionary. Like one of the big things that I had seen in one of the documentaries I watched, and I didn't even pick up on it until I was you know years and years down the road. But a lot of horror movies are are chopped up for for tension. You know they'll like the shots get longer and then shorter and then shorter and shorter and then boom kind of like the psycho you know uh shower sequence mm-hmm. where it just builds up builds up builds up where if you watch halloween there's a lot of shots of them walking and talking or um you know they walk across the, the yard to go back to the house to get the car keys mm-hmm. and then we follow them all the way back across the yard again as they're getting in the car, only to open up the car door and realize now it's unlocked. You know, it's these long, drawn-out things which came to play in the in the editing of the film, where they didn't have all the coverage that you would need to speed up the pacing. So they just let things play out and let the characters walk and let them have these moments of discovery. And they're very, very slow build, slow burn. And you would think that it was a aesthetic choice, but the truth is it all just came down to, they only had three weeks to shoot it. So you can't put a camera in a million places like you can now, because you need a ton of light to expose the film. You can't, you know, you don't have digital technology where it's like, well, we botched that take. So just move the camera over and put it over there and we'll just get a different shot of it. It was just, it is what it is. So you just let it play out And, and it, really makes the film a lot more tense because it feels more natural and not fabricated and sped up to make you feel tension and the um i what the other thing that i was reading which was which was funny and again it just kind of goes back to that indie filmmaking thing is like the film is is pretty dark overall and like obviously horror films are dark but like this one is you know especially in certain scenes very dark and um, mm-hmm. it was just because they didn't have the budget to get more lights. <laughs> and it's like, I, we run into that every fucking day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, was, I felt like that was funny. Like, yeah, well, we, we don't have any oh, yeah. more lights. So this is as good as it's getting. <laughs> well, but I mean, like that, that also helped them get one of the best moments in the movie, which is um, at the very end when Lori is backing into that dark doorway and they just slowly dim up the light on the shape's mask yeah. and he comes out mm-hmm. and that's just like super simple, um, yeah. you know, put a light there on a, on a dim switch. Yep. 
And um, oh yeah, I feel like a lot of those those moves get lost the more money you have. It's like Robert Rodriguez always talks about the money hose, where like if you have a huge budget, it's like you can just use the money hose to wash the, the problems away. <laughs> and if you if you don't have a budget, it's like you just gotta get creative. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely, it, it definitely yeah. lends to the movie, and it's it it kind of goes in contrast to this point I was making uh, maybe I think it was last time with Jake when we were talking about Saw and how the original script for Saw was like a lot more ambitious than what they were able to eventually shoot um, I think Halloween is one of, is like an example where like because they had so many restrictions it actually worked in their favor and I think the same thing can be said with Saw but I don't really want to see a version of Halloween where they had millions and millions of dollars I'm kind of stoked no. on the version with only 300k yep I agree. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me Give too. Them less. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it, it this. I mean, what you know, you, the quote you're saying about Rodriguez talking about the money hose washing all the problems away. When when you don't have the monetary, you know, resources to to fix everything, but just a quick, you know, I'll throw a hundred bucks at it, and that's you know, quick fix. It's it forces you to come up with creative alternatives. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is you can actually take two movies from, from the 70s, from the same decade, and you can kind of look at the same obstacles. So like John Carpenter's Halloween, only having $300,000, forced them to use available resources, available lights, you know, anything that they could just kind of get their hands on, including a bunch of fake leaves that they would rake up and move from lawn to lawn. That's awesome. Make it look like which not making that up. If you if you look at mm-hmm. the shots where the the autumn leaves are coming, uh-huh. they're all in the front two yards of the houses that you can see. Everything <laughs> behind it is green grass, and, and all you, the, you can plant. Yeah, it. all the trees have leaves on them, <laughs> and all the palm trees. Yeah. If you keep an eye out, this movie had Nightmare oh, yeah. on Elm Street, which is supposed to be in Ohio, which is like they're damn. There's a lot of palm trees in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah and well and and then you have the scene with loomis on the payphone and like man i never saw mountains in illinois before yeah. where's <laughs> that at? whole mountain range in the background but you know so they, they they kind of embraced the limitations and went with it but at the same time if you take a studio picture jaws was made in 1975 and the amount of money that they had that movie was budgeted for four million dollars ended up costing eight and they couldn't get the shark to work, which was their yeah. centerpiece of the movie. So their problem solving was, well, what if we just drag a bunch of yellow barrels through the water and that's our shark anytime we can't see it. And lo and behold, the, that movie is so terrifying because of all the moments that you don't see the shark. So when, you know, when Brody is, you know, throwing the the chum over the the back of the the boat he's like i can go slow ahead why don't you come down and chum some of this shit and that shark pops up like that makes you leap out of your seat and that moment would not have been as impactful had they shown the shark the entire movie you know and so there's a lot to be said for less is more it forces you to be creative and I mean, I'm sure at the time as a filmmaker, either one of them was probably bashing their head into the wall going, my God, how are we going to do this? Oh, yeah. But in in the end, you're left with something that's completely unique and people kind of gravitate towards those things. I mean, uh, John Carpenter has this awesome quote uh, where he's basically saying, 
directing is like trying to get this army over that hill by sunrise, you know? And I think he also has this quote where he's talking about in the morning, every, every crew is trying to make Citizen Kane. By the end of the day, you'd be happy if you got Dukes of Hazard. So it's just like, <laughs> you know, like you just got to do what you can do in the time that you have to do it. And um, Halloween is just like a stunning example of when it all comes together. But what really brings it together is, is the music. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'd venture to say some of the most iconic, you know, music of any film, really. Mm-hmm. Like everyone knows mm-hmm. that theme. Yep. And it's just five, yeah. four time, like uh, scales. There's na 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 na, and it's just na 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 na, and keeps going down and down and down, and it creates mm-hmm. so much tension and evokes this feeling that something's coming. And uh, we were talking about uh, before we recorded that John Carpenter had. Uh, two days three days kev uh i think i had read four but it's oh, like okay. three, or, three or four days to do the music which is the music not long at all and um really i thought i thought it was like three weeks in three weeks oh no oh no just three days oh, man. and um when you when you when you watch the movie there's not really a lot of different cues there's only like four or five main cues that kind of just get like reused through the movie but they're all really effective you know like Laurie's theme the main the main theme that that driving uh dun, 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 at the end of the movie that's so good like he just is so good at coming up with this with this like really uh evocative music and even today john carpenter is still recording his own stuff and he's he's arguably like more of a touring musician than he is like a a working director at this point even though he's now talking about maybe directing another movie which is uh exciting yeah that'd be amazing amazing i the music cue that always got me the movie was the that bomb oh yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, the really slow kind of um, I always like I always yeah. like those little like More, I don't know what you call it, like the trill or whatever. It's like like when, when something I love that. Uh, I had that on my phone for a while, and I would just set it off randomly at the office. Like whenever you get laugh. a or like whenever you get a text, that's your text yeah. message sound. Uh, actually, I think I did it once, like right when the power went out, like because I had it right there, and I was like, <laughs> and someone just went, like laughed nervously. But like that, yeah, that music's okay, and like. Uh, Carpenter said he would show the movie to executives at different studios and they would say like, this movie sucks. It's not scary without the music. And then you throw on that music and all of a sudden it's, it, it's one of the scariest movies of all time. And, uh, oh, yeah. uh, uh, Irwin the executive producer, yeah, he said like he saw all the time at screenings that kids wouldn't cover their eyes during the movie. They'd cover their ears. So yeah. it's like, this music is too much, man. When I was in, um, <laughs> When I was at Columbia, we had, you know, the intro film classes or whatever. Um, they called them MIP and MIA or whatever the hell, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Anyway, um, we they brought in one of the sound design professors. I forget the guy's name. But anyway, he was um, doing this, like, 30-minute speech on, on sound design and whatnot. And while he, w- he was doing, like, a <laughs> while he was giving the speech, he was, o- he was demonstrating how horror movies work with sound and he was getting progressively quieter and quieter as he was talking and just talking about whatever sound design and then he just whatever he did screamed or whatever just went like as high as he could and everyone's like whoa and he's like that's how they do it (laughs) real quiet and then they just hit you with it 
and it was it was so effective and i'm like damn I remember That's my senior exactly year, do. Uh, they brought in Harry Manfredini, who did the music for Friday the 13th. And just hearing that dude talk about his process and like how he came up with the music is it's so interesting. It's like, it's like these guys don't even know they're coming up with like really iconic stuff. Like when he's coming up with like, mm-hmm. he was just like, I was just, I was heard the lady say, kill, you know, kill her mommy. And I thought, what if I go, and had an echo, and it's like, dude, that's so iconic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's and it's probably super simple for him. Once once he it's like, oh, you know, just caught that hook and yeah. knew that he could run with it. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. and it, it permeates all the sequels. Like that's like mm-hmm. as much a part of Jason as the hockey mask at this point, right? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. um, definitely. But with Halloween, it's like every every soundtrack that would follow in every subsequent sequel except for season of the witch basically just kind of riffs on what carpenter had done and i know carpenter did the music for the second one and i know uh he worked with this this uh composer named alan howarth who did most of the other sequels as well but um you know by and large even the rob zombie zombie movies still kind of evoke the the john carpenter score um Mm-hmm. Like how could you? I mean, how could you do away with this? Yeah, right? exactly. It's just one of those exactly. things that it's just so iconic. It's so great that exactly. It'd be I mean, stupid if you got rid of it. And even the Rob Zombie version of it, like I know we said we're not going to get too much into the other movies, but um, that one I feel like is kind of uh, an exception because it's the remake. So maybe we could mm-hmm. talk about it for a second. But uh, do you remember how like the theme for that is kind of like the Rob Zombie version of the Halloween theme? Yeah, it's awesome. You know, I, I vaguely remember it. Yeah, yeah, it just sounds like yeah, it's been a know, hot minute since I've seen that one. But, trying to yeah. remember like what uh-huh. it just kind of sounds like you know distorted and grungy and nasty right. and stuff. Um, but yeah, that that the score is super iconic, and it's one of those things I remember in like band. If someone was uh, learning the piano, they'd show you what they learned by playing the you know na 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 na. Yeah, right. It's, yeah, it's just crazy. It's com- it's complete. It's completely. Um, it's like the one thing that that almost everyone can figure out how to play on a piano. Like they're... chopsticks now. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, I was gonna say it's either that one, chopsticks, or Mission Impossible. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Um, so I mean, like, I think the legacy of Halloween really does come from the fact that it, it's kind of this underdog story it's this movie that that these that these kids made and um you know like no one really thought it was gonna it was gonna do much business and at first it didn't it like it did kind of modestly and then through word of mouth it it kind of juggernauted because you know back then they did movies uh like regionally so like they'd be like okay halloween's gonna open up in kansas city this weekend and if it does well we'll roll it out to the to you know to some other states and it did so well mm-hmm. it's it started going everywhere and um you know it you know became such a success that they greenlit a sequel almost immediately and um i know john carpenter didn't really want too much to do with the series but he wrote the second one and um that's the one that came up with the whole sister aspect of the relationship, like Michael Myers and Laurie are, are siblings, which yeah. in my mind, I think really takes away from what makes the first movie so strong is that it's so random. He's it's just, just some, you right. Yeah. So random. Yeah. It's so like scary. Terrorism. It could have been, like, yeah, it could have been, been anybody. could have been anybody. And they had to, they had to just piss all over that. And I think it's hilarious. John Carpenter, he, he attributes that to him drinking a, a, a six pack and just being kind of hammered and being like, oh, what am I going to yeah. do? 
<laughs> at um, the beginning of every great sequel. Yeah, what the fuck? And it's also in the era of Luke, I'm your father, too. So it's like it was very popular yeah. to do that as a twist. Right. Um, but the, so, the oh, sorry, go ahead, Kev. So, so um, I, I just have a quick story about when this movie came out. Um, and it was I, I was I saw my mom yesterday and she I mentioned that that we were going to be talking about Halloween and she's like oh she's like you should tell them this story so my mom and dad they went on a date and they went to go see Halloween in the theater and I'm so jealous because that would have been amazing to see in the theater <laughs> yeah that'd be amazing right anyway um so my dad he was uh he you know he was uh he doesn't talk a whole lot. He's kind of like a tough guy. Like every time I would have friends over, they'd be like scared of him and shit. And what? so, you know, anyway, that just like sets the stage a little bit. So they're in the theater. They have a, a jumbo sized popcorn, like the huge bucket of popcorn. My dad's holding it. And they're at the scene where Lori goes into the bedroom and sees Annie on the bed and Judith's, um, tombstone above her and then she the, it's the part where Bob swings out of the whatever it is closet or whatever uh -huh. Dude, my yeah. dad like jumped so hard he, the popcorn literally went into the air and all over them oh, <laughs> that was the funniest fucking thing ever so they smelled like buttered popcorn the rest of the night I guess um, but awesome. it's just so funny and it's like yep yeah, I mean the, the, this movie you know scared the shit out of people you know when it first came out and yeah i mean that that's i'm glad you told that story too because i wanted to to talk about you know the whole hindsight is 2020 thing like uh, mm -hmm. with how blair witch necessarily wouldn't be scary for you if you saw it in 2021 mm -hmm. but back in 1999 that was insane you know and with halloween oh, yeah. Um, even though it was scary for us because we saw it as kids, like I was telling Kev, I, I showed Halloween uh, to this girl I was dating in college and she hated it. She thought it was really boring and thought it sucked. And I was like, we can never date again. Or we can never go on another date. <laughs> You're like, this is, this is not going to happen. Yeah, it's I was like, this isn't work working out. out. Um, but like, uh, I remember thinking that was so interesting because it's like, you know, she probably never watched 70s horror movies right. or 80s horror movies. She probably grew up on, you know, post 1990 like a post scream era so that just uh, that kind of stuff just didn't connect with her whereas with us uh you know even though you know we were alive when it came out we all grew up with it so it fires on all cylinders for us right um so oh, even yeah. even today i watched that movie i'm like that's so scary that shot when when tommy looks out the window and you see the shape standing in front of the house is yeah. such a haunting oh. shot and it's so minimalistic and mm -hmm. um I was just watching Carnival of Souls and they have some shots like that where it's just really simple stuff. And, you know, like we talked about It Follows. It's like, talk about a John Carpenter homage with that movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, so sure. Yeah. Like the, the naked you know, dad standing on top of the house, mm -hmm. you know, except mm -hmm. Michael Myers never is naked, obviously, but like it's a similar thing where it's just <laughs> like God. creepy. Yeah. He's just standing there with his dick out. He's just wearing, <laughs> he's just wearing the mask. Okay, so so yeah, just, I want to take one minute real quick, and because it's something that I just never picked up on on the hundred times that I've seen this film before, um, we're gonna go. We're gonna talk just for a minute about Bob, and I'm gonna yeah. call him Bob the pedophile. What the fuck? I was watching it today, and holy shit! I never, 
I maybe just never paid that close attention, but there's a oh, scene yeah. where he's talking to Linda. He's like, and then you take your clothes off and then you rip off my clothes and then we rip off Lindsay's clothes and Lindsay's a fucking kid. What the fuck, man? Yep. Holy shit. The, Wait, the, the interesting thing about that too is if you, depending on how you approach like the dialogue in that scene and approach his character, He's either a complete pedophile or he is incredibly sarcastic and it's wildly inappropriate. Right. So, right. It, and it's hard to read. And yeah, yeah his it's character hard. is interesting. Because like Linda just kind of like laughs it off or whatever. It's, and it's so like, weird. I remember even as a, like as a teenager watching the movie, be like, did he just fucking, what the fuck? <laughs> that was and my real, realization today. I was like, what I, yeah, did he just say? I was telling Kev, I just hope the actor <laughs> fucked up the name and they just left it in the movie. Because that's so weird and inappropriate. It's like, why is that in this movie? Well, I'm glad he got pinned to the wall with the yeah, world's that's... longest butcher knife. <laughs> fuck that guy. Well, here's, Bob here's sucks. an interesting thing to consider about 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 that role pj souls at the time was mm. actually uh i can't if she was dating or if they were married but um she had a relationship with dennis quaid yep and and she was trying to get him to be in the movie <laughs> and he was going to do it and he got put on a different film and couldn't do it and that's the oh, only God. reason that dennis quaid is in that role can you imagine how different that would have been like right in the context of his career yeah like, been interesting to see but there's photos of him like on the set hanging out too which is like it's so funny and i think um i could be wrong but even robert england was on that set for like a day like helping yeah, picking out up leaves. Something. i heard yeah. that that's what they say so um i love like donald pleasance is awesome yeah he's, of course, he's so, but, iconic but man when i was God when, bless him, man. right um but one of the the people which I thought would have been really interesting was Christopher Lee was up for that role as well, mm-hmm. or at least yeah. they want they were they wanted him. But damn, but yeah, Donald mm-hmm. Pleasance. I mean, he's a fucking badass. Oh, I think yeah. uh, Peter Cushing originally they wanted to get as well, but uh, they couldn't. And with Donald Pleasance, even though he's only in the movie for five days, uh, he has such a huge like presence in the movie and then he became such a pillar of the whole series like it's hard to imagine the halloween series without without donald pleasance or dr loomis you know running around saying i shot him six times <laughs> yeah <laughs> which if you watch uh a little side note here if you watch the opening to um halloween 2 uh, it's it's there's a miss at it he shoots seven times, times. <laughs> <laughs> he's not a man which is weird yeah, and well, and for me, Donald Pleasance being in that movie, like it's it's almost being the big cinephile that I am. Because as much as I love horror movies, I'm also a really, really big James Bond fan. And so, him playing Ernst Stavro Blofeld in um, Ewing of Twice, I remember watching that um, shortly after I saw Halloween for the first time. And when he showed up, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I love Donald Pleasance because I love Halloween. <laughs> and like, it, it, his, his presence, his presence just kind of evokes that like emotion where every time I see him on screen, I, I just want to like, I wish he was still around because he would just be such a cool guy to sit down and like, have a beer with just yeah. to hear yeah. about his career, people he worked with. And I appreciate the fact too, like he had been in some pretty established films at the time that he had done uh, Halloween. And I just love the fact that he approached it with the same level of professionalism and 
excitement that he approached all of his other roles and, you know, asked all the right questions, really dove into his character and, and, and brought Loomis to life. Like you could tell that it meant something to him just to be involved in the process. And I, I think that's a huge testament to what separates like a good actor versus a great actor. And it's just someone that really doesn't see the budget. They don't see the politics of it. They just see the role and they want to give it everything that they got. And that's what I love about Donald Pleasant so much. After um, when, when they were shooting the scene where Michael falls out of the window after he gets shot six or seven times. <laughs> six in the first film um, <laughs> uh, I guess it was his idea to not be shocked when when he looked over the railing and, and he wasn't there Robert oh yeah when he wasn't there and he's like yeah. I, can, I can do this two ways I can do right like oh my god he's gone or I knew this would happen which is such a stronger choice oh 100% oh, yeah. I love that oh, it's so haunting because he's like this motherfucker mm. and I guess yeah. there was another scene in the film where he calls his wife but he's but Donald Pleasant is like, yeah, no, this guy, I don't think this guy would have a family. I don't. He should just like this. This is his life essentially. This yeah. is what he's. This is what he lives mm-hmm. for. You know, this is the only thing that matters. Doesn't have a past. Doesn't have a history. Doesn't have a family. Just um, Michael Myers. Just Michael Myers. Well, and what's what's interesting? Uh, what is interesting as well is that there's a uh, there's a television cut of Halloween. Are you are you familiar with that at all, Kev? I know a little bit about it. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's like it's padded out with kind of like bullshit scenes to make it run for tv with like you know like there's like a extra scene with the girls talking about date night and then there's Mm -hmm. like a scene where loomis goes in and has to explain to the doctors on the board why he thinks michael should still be in maximum Mm -hmm. security and stuff and um you actually learn in that scene or in this cut of the movie that michael's middle name is audrey audrey yeah yeah i saw that um (laughs) but uh and then the the tv cut kind of tries to to tie in to dovetail into Halloween too. And there's like a part when he escapes, he writes the word sister and blood on his door in his room. Uh, so as a kid, I was super confused because I was like, Oh, they plant that in Halloween one. And it's like, no, not really. That's just the TV version. And the actual, yeah. like, true, they the right yeah. Yep. <laughs> but in the actual true edit of the movie, it's still just like this random act of violence, which is right. like we're saying so much scarier, mm-hmm. but um, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I, I remember watching this movie all the time as a kid, but I have a hard time really saying when, you know, I watched the whole thing, I guess, in one chunk, because it was just always on TV. Like, do you guys remember watching Joe Bob, where he would, like, he would break down movies and kind of do his commentary on them? No, I've never seen that. Oh, okay. Well, it's, like, it's up there with, like, Sven Gulli. Joe Bob is oh, actually, okay. it's Joe Bob briggs and uh he's actually on shutter he has like a whole uh new series where it's like the same thing basically oh, we're like nice. yeah so i got my introduction to like all those movies through there and um yeah it's just it's it's i just have so many fond memories with the series and that's why i'm always like really really excited to see whatever they're going to do next even if it's not good yeah. <laughs> definitely well <laughs> i I think there, I think there's actually something to be said to that with, with you know, cinephiles everywhere is just the fact that when you, when you become so attached to a particular character, a particular property, like you're in it for the long haul. It's kind of like, you know, people that are, that are obsessed with, with television shows where it's like, once you're, once there's something that grabs you or a person that grabs you in that series, you just, you're along for the ride and you have to know how it ends regardless of the good episodes, bad episodes, it doesn't matter. You're in it for the whole thing. And I mean, 
Halloween is that way. The James Bond franchise for me is that way. Star Wars is that way. Mm -hmm. Like, no matter what, it's like, that the last Star Wars, I'm, I'm not saying that the last Star Wars film sucked. I loved, I loved it personally. But, like, I could see a really, really bad Star Wars film. They're like, oh, don't worry, we're releasing another one next year. I'm like, well, I'm still going to see it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like, I, I, I have to see it. So, it's, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the thing with, like, with like you know, you, you hear a lot today, like, the toxic fans. And that, like, a lot of fans are, like, super guarded about franchises and there's like all this gatekeeping where like they'll try to like tell people that oh you're not good enough to like this because it doesn't pass like my standard of something yeah. but it's like i don't understand that because it's like we're all just fans and we just want it to be to be good yeah. it's like, i always right. hate the idea of people trying to like tell other people what they can and can't like so at a certain point you just got to say fuck what everyone else thinks and just turn blinders on right. to people I, I was just gonna, i just want to <laughs> say one thing about about toxic fandom that just because Nathan, the way you brought brought this up is like perfect. The one thing about toxic fandom more than anything else that infuriates me is when you hear these stories about people going onto social media or writing letters or whatever and like putting death threats towards an actor that's like in the movie. Oh right. Because yeah. I don't understand that because even though they're a performer and they're trying to bring a character to life that you know, as a complete manifestation of, you know, whatever the screenwriter or the director had in mind, at the end of the day, that's just a person doing a job. Mm -hmm. And it makes no sense to me that's like, oh, that one person, man, they really screwed up the movie. You know, I'm going to tell them what I think. They should go hang themselves. Like, yeah, that's, that's horrendous. Yeah, that's horrible. Like, that's, and it's like, it's oh, person. Like when Cyberpunk had all those issues when it came out, some of the developers, I guess, were getting like death threats. And it's like, was it really that bad? I, I'm playing it right now on PlayStation 4 that was supposedly where it runs the shittiest. And it's a fucking video game, guys. Calm down. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, exactly. it, it is not that big of a deal. Yes, occasionally my car will explode while I'm driving down the road. Big deal. With, like, it's a game. You just restart. I like, just think of the pressure for like filmmakers or, or you know TV showrunners and stuff where they make something that's so iconic and people love so much and and there's a continuation and eventually there'll be an end to it you know um, mm -hmm. every show every every anything eventually ends and um, man like I'm just thinking like I don't uh, like as as cool as that would be to to create something that that has that kind of legacy and whatnot. I would feel so much fucking pressure, man. Yeah. Like, think of like Game of oh, Thrones. Yeah, like, you know, the ending of Game, <laughs> like the last season of Game of Thrones, or there's a there's a million different examples of it. Or like the people who get it right, like, you know, I think Breaking Bad and did you know? Oh hell yeah, fantastically so good. But <laughs> I imagine like yeah, there's a lot of pressure that comes with it. But at a certain point, like you want to like talk to people, but you kind of got to keep people at arm's length because like you know there's yeah. a lot there's a lot of psychos out there and a lot of people are into these movies because of the creative filmmaking and because of the music and the community but there's also people that are into these movies because it's a movie about a guy who fucking stabs people and they like that you know <laughs> right. so like you right. gotta avoid you gotta avoid those motherfuckers right. and um <laughs> so i always think about that man and like how scary that is like in west craven's new nightmare how there's like a huge thing in the plot that's based on real life where like the lady uh the actress had a stalker fuck that 
Mm-hmm. Just because yeah. you did, you, all you did was do a movie, and then there's someone that watches it and goes, "Her, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow her, or call her," you know. Yeah. Going back to Halloween, just real, like real quick, and and stalking. Can we just appreciate the the scene where Lori and Annie are driving and Michael is tailing them and Don't Fear the Reaper is mm-hmm. playing? That's so oh, good. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, man. Love, love that. Yep. Anytime I you get Blue Oyster Cult. Right? But what drives me, I think it's the same scene here, but what drives me insane about that scene is the fact that they're smoking pot in the car <laughs> with the windows up. And that's my dad. Get rid of it quick. Like, Two seconds later. That man is the original person that had coronavirus because there's no way you cannot smell that. I know, I love that. Dad, how did you not? Yep. That car would have would have been foggy oh, been, as, yeah. as old London town. Yep. Like, smoke would have been billowing out. Like, I remember as a kid smoking. I literally said that out loud when I was watching it today, too. I'm like, what? Come on. Like, I remember smoking joints in people's cars in high school and you'd open the windows and it would literally just poof, like billow out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and he just goes, hey, guys, what's up? <laughs> Yeah, he's the he's he's the sheriff. <laughs> like he's just he's so used to it at this point. It's like I I almost feel like the only way you could get away with that scene working completely logically is if like he already knows, so he just doesn't care. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know? Right. He's, he's like whatever. <laughs> whatever. I got bigger fish to fry right now. There's some guy broke into the hardware store, and I like how nonchalantly they're like, "He stole a mask and a bunch of knives and some rope." What do you guys think he's doing? Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> For this movie, I think Halloween stands the test of time like a motherfucker. I think it is iconic. I watch it more than one time a year. Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably this movie and Cabin Fever were like the two movies for me as a teenager that made me feel that like I could get up and make a horror movie if I really wanted to. Um, I think Halloween was a beautiful choice for Jeremy because it segues wonderfully into his first foray into feature filmmaking with The Visitors. Um, I'll I'll kick off the scoring process. Uh, I give it six shots off the balcony. (laughs) Damn, that's good. (laughs) I love that. Um, Okay. So Halloween's fucking great. Like you can't, you can't get much better than Halloween in my opinion. I absolutely love the film. I'm giving it one good scare. Oh, hell yeah. Nice. Perfect. Nice. How about you, Jeremy? We should have told you we try to come up with clever, <laughs> cute. Uh, I should have known. Cause I, I listened, I listened to your, your first few uh, episodes. So I, I should have been prepared, but now I'm going to, I'm going to go off the cuff and just talk here. But uh, yeah, I mean, for, for me, Holly, uh, Halloween stands the test of time just because it's one of those films um, that is just so simplistic in its nature and so well executed that I just find it absolutely creepy. And then from a filmmaking standpoint, um, it's very much just a, a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and, you know, just make, make the best movie you can with what you have. And that's what resonates with me. So I, let's see if you guys get this reference. I'm going to give it one plume of cigar smoke too close to the lens. That's hilarious. (laughs) Awesome. All right. I would give it more, but there's only one plume. Yeah, there's just the one. So that's Halloween, guys. Uh, If you haven't seen the movie, what the fuck are you doing here? (laughs) Why would you be listening to this? So we're going to move into uh, talking to Jeremy about his life and uh, his story and uh, what guy I'm into filmmaking. I just wanted to say um, 
I met you at Columbia College Chicago in the directing program. And I remember thinking you were a really cool guy and we always just sort of kept in touch. And um, something that, that I discovered in film school is that you sort of like find people that, that put in as much as you do. And it just be, it, it kind of becomes apparent throughout a semester if you just pay attention, like, hey, Jeremy's on time all the time. I'm on time. Jeremy's really excited. I'm really excited. Like you just kind of like meet people that are similar to you and then hopefully you keep making movies with them. You're definitely one of those people. Timmy is and uh, Kevin like certainly is. So that's how I wanted to start off is just by saying that like you stood out as someone that not only is like a really like creative and inspired person, but you also just have like more work ethic than a lot of people do. So I just wanted to open the floor to just wanted to open the floor to you to kind of talk a little bit about yourself and what made you uh, passionate about being a storyteller. Wow. Thank you so much, man. Um, uh, well, I mean, you, you, Tim, Kevin, and a smattering of others from, from Columbia College are like some of the most ambitious and driven people that I know. And that's just why I love, you know, making movies with you guys and hanging out with you guys and, you know, doing awesome podcasts like this. Um, uh, for for me, uh, filmmaking became my my passion, my my calling when I was really young. Um, I had I had leukemia um, when I was a kid, and so I spent a lot of time um, in the hospital and undergoing chemotherapy. And um, I, I, I tend to ramble, so I'm going to try and keep make this the abridged version of the story. Um, but um, um, one particular stretch of time when I was in the in the hospital. Um, there was a children's wing right down the hall from my room and they just had this little bookshelf with, you know, all these Disney movies and a bunch of just random movies on there that you could watch. And one of the movies that was on that shelf was uh, the original Superman movie with uh, Christopher Reeve and, and Margot Kidder. And I, I watched that movie and I was just hypnotized by it. And the moment that Christopher Reeve takes flight for the first time and you see him fly towards camera and he banks off screen with you know John Williams just incredible score uh the bump and he flies away I remember re-watching that moment just over and over again and at the age of six I was six or seven at the time um after seeing that I just I was so hooked that I just knew that I wanted to make movies and I wanted to tell stories and I pursued that feeling um ever since then. And in high school, I did like uh, lighting and sound design and, and live video switching for like all the school plays, started making short films with friends. And eventually I ended up at the Columbia College and um, really dove into, you know, the process of, of filmmaking and just became obsessed with it. And that's where I met, you know, you and Tim and Alex Perez, Chris Padillo. Um, I met Kevin through you on different shoots and, um, you know, the rest is history. And I just kept, kept going and, and I have not stopped. <laughs> I'm just obsessed with, with, um, with filmmaking and I love telling stories. So One that's, thing, that's kind of my background in a nutshell. If I can just tell a, a, a Jeremy story real quick that I think is a, a good testament to just you as a person. Um, I remember uh, I got a job working on a feature film that I will not say the name of but it was a shit show and I was the second AD on this movie. And um, so they asked me if I had some friends that would, you know, want to come on as, as PAs. And um, 
one of the first people I thought of was Jeremy. And I know Jeremy was trying to like save up to get a place here in Chicago. So we brought you on and you were like on that shoot, like every day, man. And um, oh, yeah. uh, it was a fucking nightmare. And we brought on other people who would like kind of do a day and then be like, this sucks. I'm not coming back. <laughs> but even though you knew it sucked, you were in the trenches with me every day. And a lot of times they're sending you driving like hours out of your way, like completely oh, yeah. un unappreciated, but you got the money to get an apartment off that gig. And, um, oh yeah, you know, you, you're, you're just one of those people that you're not going to let anything stop you. And I think that's, that's a really important lesson for anyone that hears this, that maybe like wants to do something, but feels like circumstances keep them from doing it. It's like at a certain point, you just kind of have to take the onus on yourself and be like, I'm going to wake up every day. I'm going to just smash my head against the wall until I get, until I get this done. And you're one of the, like a shining yeah. example of that. At the time that we were doing that, I was sleeping on Tim Van Meegum's uh, couch. Wow. And uh, I had just, I just uh, came back to uh, Chicago. I graduated from Columbia in 2013, went back to Michigan um, for some time, and then moved back to Chicago. And that was my first, you know, kind of foray. And I couldn't believe how quickly, um, after being back in Chicago, how I was able to get on that set because of you, Nathan. I had only been in Chicago for two weeks maybe maybe three weeks and that's when you called me about it so and i was super excited and yeah i mean for the amount of money they were they were shelling out at the time i was so broke and i i saved every penny from that shoot uh, to get get an apartment and then i ended up getting an internship a six-month internship um that was paid uh at the onion and i, I worked with the nice. yeah I worked with the, the click hole team there and um, uh, I shot the two music videos for uh, a band out in Chicago and um, ended up bringing Rachel uh, out to be uh, an actor in, in one of the music videos. And from there, conversations started happening about doing a little feature film that almost killed all of us. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, film filmmaking it really is, you know, it really is a craft. It's a craftsman's kind of kind of gig. And it's it's strange. The only way that you learn how to do things better is by doing them poorly the first time. Oh, and absolutely. you realize all your that's it. I mean, you, you realize all your mistakes. Um as you're going into something with, you know, scheduling, or it's like, you know, I, I think the most rookie mistake when you first start off and everybody makes it is doesn't matter what you write or if somebody else wrote it, but you, you'll read it or you'll plan it out. You're like, Oh yeah, well, th I mean, this will only take like, you know, an hour or two to shoot. And that's like the first rookie mistake where you sit there and you go, Oh yeah. Th three or four pages of dialogue. Psh, we'll knock it out in an hour. We'll you be got done. this by the ass. <laughs> and like no and it doesn't dawn on you until you like the first time you really dive into it and you start putting you know putting it all together and realizing all the different coverage that you need and getting the performances right like wow that took a full eight hour day to just shoot these three pages mm -hmm. and that's that is the first rookie mistake that, that you make and the only way that you learn to develop better skills as, as a craftsman is just by making those mistakes early on and hopefully you're doing it with your own money and 
you're doing it when you in your own free time and that's that's really where i think everybody should start is make your own projects with what resources that you have very john mm -hmm. carpenter style mm -hmm. and make the mistakes then so that way when you get into the bigger projects it's like no i already know exactly what's going to go wrong if we do it that way <laughs> and you know and lo and behold you you will learn other mis you'll, you'll experience other mistakes on bigger projects but hopefully you've made enough mistakes in the past to where it's like the simple stuff mm -hmm. that stuff just falls right off your shoulders you know exactly what you're getting yourself into um but yeah it's 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 strictly a craftsman's game that's the only way you can describe filmmaking really I think failure gets demonized a bit too much in society. Like failure is so important. It's your perspective, you know, because failure can be, it can be a tool, you know? I think I've said it before on this podcast, but you know, if, if you're an aspiring filmmaker, if you think this is something you want to do, go out and do it. Don't, yep. you know, it, mm -hmm. go get your iPhone. Everyone has an iPhone or some sort of camera that, you know, you don't have to have the fanciest thing. Go grab a couple of friends and make a short film you know uh just go do it and then you're just gonna you're gonna through that process you're you're gonna start to learn um like oh yeah you know you, it's just just do you know yeah. <laughs> that, that's... experience is the best teacher and everybody i think there's this inherent fear too with people that especially aspiring filmmakers too that are really passionate about it it's like well what if it sucks well the whole point of the first things you make they're supposed to suck. They're not supposed suck. to be good. Yeah. Yeah. Like no one is expecting you to pick up a camera for the very first time and like make Jurassic Park or Schindler's <laughs> List or whatever the hell. Like they're expecting to you to figure out, can you put the camera in focus? Do you know how to tell a story from start to finish? You know, as basic as it is. And just make something. Mm-hmm. That's the only way you get better. It's just yep. make something. So Jeremy, yeah. uh, we wanted to ask you a little bit about the visitors. We're curious sort of like how the project started, how you got it off the ground and sort of what your general experience was like making a feature where you wore so many different hats behind the scenes. Sure, absolutely. So um, actually the, the genesis of the idea, I can start there. Um, I remember going with my dad out to, it was a family friend of ours. Um, they had this house that was out in the middle of nowhere, out in this little, little town called Carson City, Michigan. And at the time, um, I can't, we were having some sort of rain issue here. Like we weren't, the crops were getting enough rain, but anything, everything looked like kind of like Dust Bowl era driving out to this place. And so we get out to this house and I cannot emphasize the phrase middle of nowhere enough <laughs> where we get out there and it was spooky. There was no one at this house. Uh, we were storing our family's pop-up camper in their, in their pole barn. And I just kept looking at this property and it just, it was so creepy. It was one of those things where it was like, you could point a camera in any direction and the production design job is done for you. Like it was just, it was perfect. And Fast forward probably about a year or two later, um, uh, the way I get I get a lot of my ideas is I'll, I'll listen to music and I used to go on like really long walks like out through the woods and stuff like that, um, different nature preserves and, and stuff. And I'm listening to, of all things, uh, uh, it was a Billy Joel song 
followed by a Bobby Darren song. And these two songs stuck in my head. And it just got this idea of like, what if? And the idea like kept changing and it just shifted and shifted and shifted and shifted. Well, that's, that's where the genesis of the idea of the idea came from. And then I, I pitched the concept to, to Rachel and she thought it was just brilliant. And I wrote the first draft of the script in three days. Wow. And, and yeah, and she, she sat in my apartment in, in Mason, Michigan, and um, I, I just cranked out the first draft of the this, of this script. And then um, we ended up raising the money through um, uh, her, her family basically fronted pretty much all of it. And um, we were able to go out and make this low budget, micro budget feature length horror film. And um, everything kind of snowballed from there. Um, I'm trying to think how I want to dive into this. It, really, the experience of making the movie, it was extremely difficult because even though we had done many short films before, handful of music videos, corporate stuff, we knew how to make films. But the scale and the scope at which you're making it, it's weird. It's like, you, you know, we just made a 20 minute short film. So how hard could it be to make something that's 90 minutes? And it doesn't dawn on you until you're scheduling it and you're figuring out what gear you need and how you're gonna work with the location and how many actors you need. Like the, the, the experience mixing with the lack of experience clashed on that set and it just created all these different things that that went wrong with um our camera equipment malfunctioning and we had location issues and um you know there, there's kind of this perspective from uh certain individuals that the movie you know was just going to be something little and fun to do and other people were like, no, this is gonna be our career and our calling card. And so it just, it was that mixture of experience meaning lack of experience that created, uh, you know, many issues that we had to overcome to make the movie. But in the end, I think what's gonna surprise people um, because we will be submitting it to festivals this year. It is like, I'm at like the 98% mark on the, on the movie nice. right now finishing up nice. color correction. Um, I think what will surprise people, especially people that were in it, is just how much those conflicts actually created natural tension in the story. And it ends up, it, I think it's going to blow people away how well done it ended up being. Because, you know, at the time you're making it, when everything's going wrong, <laughs> you're like, are we even going to be able to salvage this? <laughs> like, this is going to be a piece of shit. God damn it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we, not kidding. On three separate occasions, Rachel and I went 72 hours without sleep Ooh. making that movie. <laughs> it and was, that's that, that's the stuff like when when they push crews too hard and they send people home after like a 20 hour day that people would like fall asleep at the wheel and like flip their van or something. So it's like 
you know, not only when you're making a movie is it's like, you know, this constant puzzle solving and it's like every challenge relates to the next challenge relates to the next one, but add to that sleep deprivation and you're not eating very well. And it's like, it's just, there's a lot of things like for, for me, whenever I've worked on a feature, I always got really, really sick right after we wrapped because like, I like, Mm -hmm. it's amazing that your body will like not allow you to get sick when you when it when you can't like it's like we need to get through this man we're right at the end of the shoot and then as soon as you wrap it's like your body's like okay you have the flu now even on a even on a short film man like a one day shoot i feel it like maybe i'm just getting old but fuck i'm like oh <laughs> like i don't want to move and that's just a one day yeah. thing man wait you know doing it every in and in and out every fucking day yeah, yeah is, I don't understand how like hole. Kevin Smith would like shoot all day and then edit all night, right. and then so like by the end of the movie he has oh, a cut yeah. of the movie done. I'm like, you know, I'm good. Even like with this podcast, like if we record it, I kind of like enjoy walking away for a couple of days and coming back. Like I'm I'm not like as soon as we get done, I'm like not in there editing it because I'm so excited. Like I do like to let things breathe. And when so when you when you said uh, you wrote the script in three days, I'm like, holy shit! Because for me, yeah, I, like. Yeah, I just wrote a script and I wrote it in 27 days. And that's the fastest I have ever written a script. I thought I Fucking was slacker. Man. That's what I'm that's saying. I feel like a slow poke. I thought I was Stephen <laughs> King. Like, I'm like, I'm doing five pages a day, motherfucker. <laughs> Hell yeah. Jeremy's like, I did 30 pages today. But you know, it's amazing. The, the weird, the, the funny thing is though, like when you hear people say like, oh yeah, I wrote the script in two days. Like, I didn't say it was good. I just said I wrote it in three <laughs> days. Still, the fact that you put the pedal over the metal. <laughs> yeah. I'm and still just, impressed. Was, oh, well, thank you, sir. Thank you. And it, it was just, you know, spewing it all out. But, you know, I have to give credit where credit's due. Where going into my first feature film and trying to figure out how I was going to do this, I, I, and I'm not saying this because she's the love of my life. I'm saying this because the absolute truth. Had Rachel not been involved with that movie, I don't, I seriously don't know if we would have finished it because Rachel has this like superhuman ability to, to come up with creative concepts and problem solve on the fly. Like I can do it, but it, it takes me longer to get the gears turning because I had to like, process everything that built up to like a particular moment that we're trying to fix where she can look at something and see the issue and she's like okay give me 30 minutes and we all walk away she's like okay we're going to move this scene to this day we're going to actually shoot this first we are going to actually start with their clothes that we should move this around and she has it all mapped out and as you're listening like that makes total sense that's awesome like perfect and so she is like the perfect creative counterpart where it's like checks and balances. And she, I mean, immediately can read something and be like, okay, great. That's a great idea. But how the heck are we going to shoot that with this, you know, X number of dollars? And what if we change it to this? You still get the same effect, but we can do it in camera. It won't cost any money. Like she is the best at that. And I know that if, if I wasn't getting any sleep on that movie, she wasn't getting any sleep either because she was staying on location. And I remember coming back on some of the days, like, oh man, I only got like two hours of sleep. I said, she goes, yeah, I haven't slept at all because I remember that we need the mailbox for the opening shot. And so I dug a hole 
and and play it to the mailbox. <laughs> I was frightened. I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. We do need that, don't we? <laughs> Dedication. I think it's so important to have someone like that, you know, and even connecting it back to Halloween, like with John Carpenter, he had Deborah Hill and mm -hmm. um, I know she was his script supervisor on assault and then, uh, you know, became the producer on Halloween and helped write it and stuff, but they were dating at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. so a lot of people were like, Oh, that's nepotism. She's just the, the director's girlfriend, but like she worked her ass off and she was a badass producer and she made that oh, movie yeah. the great, set that it was and like you know a lot of the success of halloween i think doesn't get attributed to her and so i when it should so i was kind of getting similar vibes with this where it sounds like rachel was was always there constantly helping you solve problems was always like a supportive force to bounce ideas off of and it's like yeah i just can't i can't uh stress enough how important that is especially when you're when you're doing something on a set where it's like time is is precious money is precious people's you know every people's schedules are are hectic and it's like having someone there that can be very tactile and efficient with how you make decisions is like it's so important because like you know as the, as the director and the writer sometimes you can get a little emotional because you're a little too close to it you know correct correct yeah you and you have this this problem where it, it, it i don't know if everybody has this but i can see the movie in my head even as I write it, like I know the cuts, I know the angles, I know. And so it, it's kind of like disheartening when you get there and you're trying to make it happen. You're like, crap, well, we can't do it because of this or this is missing. Mm -hmm. And it's good to have somebody there that can take that image that's in your head and refine it to its core. And at certain points, just make you go, that image that you had in your head, throw it out because this is a better image. And then it dawns on you as they're explaining, like, oh, yeah, you're right. And, like, and not only is it a better image, we can shoot it faster and get an even better reaction in the story. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really what, you know, other than being a, an incredible performer, which, I mean, she is, um, that's really what Rachel brought to the table was just this level of, of ingenuity that, really kept the film on its toes and got us across the finish, you know, across the finish line. And um, people would not be seeing it in festivals at some point this year, um, fingers crossed, uh, <laughs> had it not been for her hard work and, and dedication on it. Like we, we were dead and it, it's so funny, Nathan, when, uh, no, Kevin, when you said you were exhausted after like a one day shoot, yeah. <laughs> I just want, I. I think this is a good way to end uh, talking about the visitors. Um, <laughs> when when we finished production and we went back to location and we got everything cleaned up, we drove back to Chicago. It was me, Rachel, and Chris Padillo, and I cannot make this up. We got back to Chicago at probably five o'clock in the morning. We went up to my third floor apartment. Chris passed out on the couch. Rachel and I went and, and passed out on the bed. Chris woke up about eight o'clock. His sister picked him up and I said, hey man, I'll see ya. I went back to bed. Rachel and I woke up, not exaggerating. It was like nine or 10 o'clock at night. We ate some food, watched like two episodes of a TV show, 
went back to bed and didn't wake up till three or four the next day. <laughs> we yeah. we slept for like eighteen hours. That's what you we were know. so physically exhausted and mentally drained. I yeah, like we had nothing left. The gas tank was on E. <laughs> like we were we were done. The, the movie Hunter that I worked on, uh, I actually met Amy on that one, but our last day of shooting, we we went all the way around the clock, 24 hours straight, and we wrapped, and I had a, a, a finals paper due, so like I was like, I'm going to close my eyes for like an hour, and I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to finish this thing, so I closed my eyes, and I woke up 12 hours later, <laughs> and I had like 45 minutes to get my paper done. And I totally got it done and I got a B plus and I passed the class with an A minus. But that was one of those things where like, you know, (laughs) we're just, no one, no one bullshits you better than you. And that's one of those things where like, I was like, you're just going to close your eyes for just one second, just one second, knowing that it was going to be like 12 hours. Yeah. So yeah, it's, Mm -hmm. I think that's a super common thing with movie shoots is that you push yourself right to the edge. And then right when you wrap your body's like, fuck you, man. Why? Oh yeah. Why'd you do that to me? Yep. Man. I think it's a good, that's a good spot to, to end it. <laughs> it is. It is. And you, you have to get better. And I think that's, I think one of the big walk uh, things that we learned after the project was over was on future shoots, we really do have to take better care of ourselves. And I think that's an important lesson to, to, to kind of send out there, at least in a small sense to aspiring filmmakers. Like it is important to work hard and, you know, dedicate yourself to finishing the project but man you have got to um you've got to take care of yourself and really pay attention to what your body is saying and at the end of the day you're making a movie you know take care of yourself and yeah you can work long hours sure but don't kill yourself in the process of doing it because you want to be around to make more movies Correct. correct Awesome, man. Well, that's a good place to end it with uh, just a little bit about Jeremy's story. And we're really excited for everyone to see his his movie, The Visitors, when it, it starts making its festival rounds later this year. Yeah. So uh, now I guess that moves us Thank into you. our next part of the show, which is uh, we try to we try to end the show with a ghost story of some type. So uh, do you have anything, Jeremy, from your own life that you want to talk about? You know, I, I, I mine, mine's going to be short and sweet because I don't, I don't have much. But I, That's perfect. I, I, yeah. don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, when I was a little kid, uh, we're, we're still living in Eaton Rapids. I remember one night, um, <clears throat> my brother Brian and I, we had, a, we had a room down in the basement. And I was really, really, really tired. I think I was going through chemotherapy at the time. And I remember there was a night where I heard some voices upstairs. And it was my parents. It probably was my parents. But I remember this light that came down the stairs. It looked like an orb that came into our room. I remember it lit everything up and then it left. And to this day, I don't know what it was. But I remember I fell asleep almost immediately after. So... Okay. It could have been a ghost, or so I could have been extremely exhausted. <laughs> yeah, I, it was some aliens. Yeah, it was an alien. Alien yeah. probe. You hear a lot of those. Where it's like someone like sees an orb or something, and then it, it, but it didn't feel like a threatening presence. It just felt like kind of this warm, like embracing light or something like that. 
there's a I forget what it's called, but there's a podcast I listen to about that. And there's so many people that send in orb stories, and you see it all the time in like photos too, right? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, it could it could have been a spirit. It could have been. I mean, I remember. Who knows? Here's the thing: was I was not afraid of it, but it was weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's that's about that's about it. But I I don't think I've really in, encountered a ghost. But that isn't to say that I don't believe in spirits. I 100% believe in spirits and I believe in ghosts. It's just, I don't know if I've really had like a full-on encounter where it's like, you know, Kevin's story about going into the uh, um, uh, asylum. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. You just got to go into more abandoned places, Jeremy. Just start, yeah. you know, and you'll, Live you'll a eventually little. run yeah. into something. <laughs> that church in indiana that we shot at that one music video like that had the basement with the spray paint that said like come play down here yeah. that place had some mm. ghosts for sure if you would if you'd stayed too oh, late yeah. but I, same thing i've never really seen a ghost i had like one story as a kid but it wasn't really anything like what kev has so but oh, yeah. you know at least you have something you know <laughs> no that's awesome yeah i like it i think it's a good one and it's a good place to end it too so yeah um so, well, yeah, thank, guys. thank you so much guys. this is fantastic i love doing this dude thank you for being on here um, yeah thank you so much that does it fun. uh for oh, episode six everyone if, yeah. if you made it to this point uh in the episode thank you so much uh check out jeremy hole uh check out rachel claire check out everything that they've done we're really excited to see what you guys have coming up in the future and we hope to bring you on the podcast again real soon to talk some more about movies and in life man awesome awesome i'll come back anytime just name it. Awesome, man. Well, thank you guys for tuning in and uh, make sure you check us out next week. This has been Those Who Remain. Mm-hmm.